As we approach yet again the anniversary of our Savior's resurrection, a living prophet's words guide us on how best to remember him. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Welcome again to Gospel Doctrine. I'm Mark Holt, and this is your Come Follow Me podcast. As always, to send me a question or to comment on the show, please email me at gt at gospeldoctrine.com. And for today, if you've been following along in your Come Follow Me manual, uh, you'll notice that we kind of skip out of order a little bit around Easter time. And so what we what we are doing now is uh, jumping sort of all over the Book of Mormon to talk about the ways in which the Book of Mormon testifies of Jesus Christ. And uh, who better to guide us on this journey than our prophet Russell M. Nelson. So I just want to read a few words. I, For me, I wanted to prepare for a general conference by reading uh, some of his talks from last time. And in his closing remarks, uh, President Nelson's closing remarks from the final session of October 19 conference, um, he talked about the temple, the new temple recommend questions. They were slightly changed. But then he also said that this conference was going to be uh, unlike any other before it. And that promise is obviously is going to be fulfilled in a number of ways. Uh, but one of the ways in which he talked about it being different was that we were going to focus heavily on the restoration. And this is going to be a bicentennial year to commemorate the first vision. Now, uh, he asked a few, he said a few very important things. One was, um, he asked the question, how, or he asked us to ask the question, how would my life be different if my knowledge gained from the Book of Mormon were suddenly taken away? So that's the question that I decided to focus on uh, in today's lesson was, what do I know about Jesus Christ as we uh, approach the celebration of his resurrection? What do I know about him? from the Book of Mormon, and uh, maybe more broadly, we might go a little bit beyond that, but from the Book of Mormon that I would not know if there were no Book of Mormon, if the, if the knowledge were suddenly taken away. He also said a few other things that we might want to focus on. How have the events that followed the first vision made a difference for me and my loved ones? And then talking specifically about temples, he said, it is easier to build a temple than it is to build a people prepared for a temple. The temple is the crowning jewel of the restoration. These are some quotes from from his final talk uh, last time. So I'm looking forward to hearing from our living prophets and apostles again in very short order. I I know that all of you are too. And so then uh, if you're listening to this before conference, then those are some ways in which we can prepare. Um, And especially the first quote I gave you, which is, Immerse yourself in the glorious light of the resurrection, I'm sorry, of the restoration. Uh, we, we can, and this is how we do it, right? We, we can uh, spend some time understanding what it is that the restoration did for us. Um, one, one of the ways that people sort of can take the gospel for granted is to not realize that all of the things that we're about to go over today, what exactly have we learned because Joseph Smith was willing to go through what he went through, and every all of the early saints were willing to carry this truth forward to us and hand it to us. 
and present it to us. And we have the privilege of being taught the principles, the commandments, the truths that they were willing to sacrifice to bring to light. So um, before I jump right in, I also wanted to mention that two years ago I did an episode. It it was near the start of our uh, initial podcast season. I did an episode called uh, Easter Sunday and Holy Week, I think it was. And it was season zero, episode one. So for those who haven't been listening too long, I do a season zero episode when I when it's out of uh, when I want to just add more content that isn't part of the Come Follow Me curriculum. So at that time, um, that wasn't part of the Sunday school lesson that was before Come Follow Me. And I did an entire episode on the days approaching. Uh, Easter Sunday, the week the week that led up to that. So if you would like to get a, a New Testament perspective, then you can go back one year to our e- Easter lesson last year, or you can go back two years to our special episode on, uh, on Easter Sunday and Holy Week. I recommend both of those. Uh, but for today, we'll be talking about Jesus Christ as revealed in the Book of Mormon. So some of these insights that I'm going to share with you, some of the questions and and um, answers that I'm going to share with you come from an Enzyme article from the December 1988 issue called Unique Insights on Christ from the Book of Mormon by Gilbert Scharfs. Um, and then also, obviously, from the scriptures and from other commentary. So the way I decided to structure today's lesson was just to talk about it maybe uh, chronologically, as it were, or from go from what the Book of Mormon tells us about Jesus starting with the council in heaven all the way to uh, the second coming and beyond and anything in between. So we'll we'll take it in that order. And thinking about that, and then with each of these insights, I will present you with a scripture. So if you want to write these down as we go, then you can go back and, uh, and refer to them later. And that might be helpful to you on Easter Sunday. You can go through those scriptures and read them sequentially, or you can uh, just pick your top three or four to read with your family, however you want to do it. Obviously, uh, your worship is in your own hands. Uh, interestingly enough, this will be the first time uh, that I've ever had the sacrament on conference weekend. So I think that'll probably be true of most of you as well. So that'll be interesting. Okay, so first of all, Christ's atonement. So just to jump right in, Christ's atonement, we learn from the Book of Mormon that it was part of of an eternal plan that included the need for a savior. So elsewhere in Christendom, the idea about the fall, the idea about what we're doing here on earth is that Adam and Eve screwed up God's plan and they took it off course. And so Jesus Christ had to come in to sort of uh, rescue it. The atonement of Jesus Christ, the his mortal ministry his sacrifice, his birth on uh, in Bethlehem, his humility, his condescension, all of that was plan B. And he had to bring us back to where we would have been had Adam and Eve not made such a huge mistake in the Garden of Eden. And what we learn in the Book of Mormon is that the central priority in God's plan was to create the moral agency of humankind. So if you want to know more about that, look in Second Nephi chapter 2 to learn all about the, what it's called the law of opposition in that chapter. Uh, and, and it means that there is, to all good, there is opposed an evil to 
everything that would be pleasant to every good reward, there would be a punishment or something that is unpleasant. And the way that we experience joy is by knowing that there is a state of not having joy. We cannot have anything good without experiencing the possibility of its absence. And that includes the choice to follow Jesus. There is no freedom to choose Christ without the option to also reject him. And that choice, you, you and I both have seen plenty of people make that choice, and that choice has real consequences. So therefore, the choice to follow Jesus also has real rewards waiting for us. I, I trust that you've probably seen the, the way in which someone's life changes when they turn their back on the Savior. And I don't mean that they begin to hate God. I mean that they prioritize him less and less until basically Jesus Christ isn't part of their life at all. And if you are living close to the Spirit, then when you see something like that, it pains you. And you wish that they would change their mind. It, you, may, you may talk to them, you may not. But uh, I believe that all of us feel a little bit of, of pain for the people that we love when we see them prioritizing less the things of the Spirit, and especially the Savior. And therefore, um, so this is, this is now a reason to take heart because the law of opposition says, if there are real consequences when you turn your back on Jesus, then that means there's a real reward when you, when you hold the course. Paradoxically, I think it's probably, I don't want to say easier, but I think a lot of people around the world are probably moving into a state where they're willing to prioritize the worship of God and humility before God because of the difficulties that they're suffering with the global pandemic that is happening right now. And that, look, that's why in the scriptures we read over and over again, that's why God has to send suffering, is because people have made God less of a priority than he needs them to. And as Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 31, I'm going to make a new covenant with man where they will obey me. I'm going to bring them to me. This time it'll work. The Jews, they, they turned their back on the covenant that they made with me on, on Mount Sinai. But there will come a day when they will keep their covenant with me because I'm going, to, I'm going to write the law on their hearts. They will have it within them. They will carry it with them always. So that's, uh, that's the first thing is that our, our worship of Christ and Christ being our Savior, our relationship with him, it was not plan B. It was always intended to be that way. Adam and Eve... Uh, could not have progressed, they could not have had offspring, uh, and they could not have brought God's purposes about had they not been willing to sacrifice in the Garden of Eden. Um, and if you want to know more about what they exactly they accomplished, um, you can look at our, I believe it's Lesson 4 in our Old Testament series, to, again, two years ago. Another thing we, look, we learn from the Book of Mormon is that Christ is the God of the Old Testament, in 3 Nephi, chapter 15, verse 5, uh, he basically says, I am he that gave the law and covenanted with my people Israel. So when Christ is teaching the Nephites after his resurrection, he tells them this, it's me, I'm the one that did that. I'm the one who appeared to Moses, and I'm the one who said on Mount Sinai that I will be to you, you will be to me as a people, and I will be to you as God. So this is a testimony directly from Jesus Christ in the flesh, saying that he was the God of the Old Testament. 
and therefore that is the doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and with good reason. So that gives us an understanding about Jesus that is, there are those who believe that Jesus and Jehovah are the same, but they basically believe that um, they are the same in the, in the way that is described in the Nicene Creed, which is that God is without form or passions, and when he came to earth, he took upon him flesh, and the Son is the flesh, and as soon as uh, Jesus died and was resurrected and left the earth, then he stopped being the Son. Um, it's, as has been said by people far wiser than myself, it's basically an incomprehensible description of the nature of God, and the reason, the justification given for that is that God is himself incomprehensible. Now, that may be true. We cannot comprehend God, but we can comprehend a little bit more of them, a, m- a little bit more of his nature than that creed teaches us. I'm so grateful for that understanding. Uh, it's so clear. The doctrine of the Book of Mormon about Jesus Christ is so clear, or as the Book of Mormon itself describes that doctrine, it's plain and it's precious. We need clarity. As, Jesus, as uh, I'm sorry, Joseph Smith said, when we don't know the true nature of God, when we don't have actual facts about God, then it affects our ability to have faith in him. All right, the third thing that I, uh, that I identified, that even in Old Testament times, Jesus appeared the way he did in his mortal ministry and in his, after his resurrection. So, long before uh, his birth in Bethlehem, in fact, long before his appearance to Abraham, and to Isaac and Jacob, and to Moses. Uh, Jehovah appeared to a prophet that we have record of in the Book of Mormon, known as the brother of Jared. And in Ether chapter 3, verse 16, he says to the brother of Jared, You have seen that I will take upon me flesh, and the form that you see is the form that I will, this is what I will look like in my mortal ministry, in my mortal life. And that tells us, that a physical body is part of God's plan, and it is part of the nature of God. What an important understanding that is. Without the Book of Mormon, we would not have that understanding. We would uh, now let me just give you a few indications of the lack, where the lack of that understanding can lead people. So you've all heard of, uh, perhaps not in so many words, but you've all heard of the mortification of the flesh. There are those religious devotees who believe that anything physical is evil because God, as it says in John, in one of the ways that it's translated, God is a spirit. And therefore, anything that uh, would confine the spirit or would tend to lead the spirit into temptation is to be rejected, is uh, is profane, is vulgar, and is evil. And it is basically a door in, in which Satan, through which Satan can access our spirit. Now, it is true that our body is to be resisted. Our body opens us up to fleshly urges. And if, if it weren't for this teaching, then we would think that it was entirely evil. But we learn, uh, again, from the Book of Mormon, but also from modern revelation, that the spirit and the body together, when they're united... That's the soul of man. A body and a spirit together is a soul. And we learn from uh, the revelation in D&C 138 that the spirits in, in the spirit world, they looked on their separation from their body as a sort of prison. 
And that is indicated, it's hinted at, by Jesus Christ having the, the physical form, even as a spiritual being before his birth in the Book of Mormon. From the Book of Mormon, we learn that Jesus Christ esteems everyone equally. I'm going to read to you now from 2 Nephi chapter 26, verse 33. He doeth nothing, save it be plain unto the children of men, and he inviteth them all to come unto him and partake of his goodness. And he denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female. And he remembereth the heathen, and all are alike unto God, both Jew and Gentile. So for, for centuries, under Israelite rule, and then for even more centuries, after the resurrection of Christ and uh, under Christian teachings, the belief has been that because we have the truth, we the believers in God, we the people of whatever covenant was active at that time, that we are set apart, we're special, we are better than the people who were not chosen by God to receive the truth. And the Book of Mormon helps us understand that's just not the case. We are privileged and we should be humbled and we should be uh, driven to realize that where much is given, much is required, because God has other sheep that are not of this fold, he told the Nephites. He is going to every people where there is somebody willing there to listen to him. Now, in Jacob chapter 5, we also learned, uh, if, you, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, um, my interpretation of that chapter, this is, this is not from the scripture, this is from my interpretation of it, but my interpretation of those olive trees is not just the people, but it's also the religion. God, when he reveals truth, it takes work. He has to create a people from nothing, and that has to be done through their agency. And so it takes time, and it takes cooperation, and it takes fellowship. And then it takes them passing on what they learn from one generation to another. And that sort of thing can easily die out if there is, as it did um, in, the, in the decades following the resurrection of Christ, uh, it can easily die out and go away. And when it does, then that tree withers and dies. The tree needs both the roots, which is the doctrine, and the branches, which is the fellowship and the religion. And so what we learn in the Book of Mormon is that Christ is willing to go anywhere where people will listen to him and establish his religion, and he will talk to them. He will call a prophet from among them, and he will love them every bit as much as he loves the Jews in Israel and as he loves the Christians in, in modern times. He loves the people who've never heard his name. There is no physical difference you could have that means one wit to him. It doesn't, it's totally meaningless. And uh, color of skin, disability, national origin, even I might add sexual preference. God loves you every bit as much as every other person on the earth, including the prophet. He loves us all so much. Now, there are people in whom he's more pleased. Uh, I, I strive to be more and more in God's good graces all the time, but I compare my own performance to how I was before and not to any other person because God loves me the way he loves all of them. And that is taught to us in the Book of Mormon. When, when Christ is among the Nephites, he says, you are the people about whom I was speaking when I told the Israelites that I had to come and talk to other sheep. And now I also have even more sheep. And we don't know were all of those sheep descendants of Abraham, or were they people that were totally apart from Abraham? We have a we have a record in the book of Ether of a people that were not descended from Abraham, and God called prophets from among them, as he did with so many other people. 
So while it's possible to get the impression from the Bible that God does favor some people, we learn from the Book of Mormon over and over again that he's no respecter of persons. And what a wonderful lesson that is. From the Book of Mormon, we learn that without Christ, we would be forever under Satan's power. Now in the Bible, Satan is mentioned, but the doctrine of Satan is not clearly taught. And so it's left for many people to interpret who it is that opposes the will of God. And there are the interpretations from the Satan in the Bible run from someone who is sort of uh, the loyal opposition, you might say, which is a figure in, in British common law, which is that uh, when, there's, when there are two lawyers that are opposite each other in a court case, they actually respect each other, you know, as soon as the court case is done. And there are people who envision the relationship between God and Satan in this way all the way to Satan not existing at all. And there are people who have uh, what you might consider a similar to a Latter-day Saint view, which is that Satan is so evil that he would tempt you. There is nothing that is so wrong that he would not want you to do it. There is no bottom to how far he would try to get you to fall. That is how evil he is. Anything you could imagine, he would come up with something worse. And the idea that there is someone that evil, that he glories in sin for its own sake, uh, that is made clear in the Book of Mormon. And that helps us to stay firmly on the path because we realize that it is not the pleasure of sin that actually drives us into it. It is the, uh, the hardcore efforts of a very intelligent and very determined and very evil being who separated himself from the plan of God so long ago. Knowing that helps me to take the luster away from any sort of sinful thought or action that I might choose. And you may have heard that uh, old story, Footprints, where the person's walking in the sand and they see one set of footprints and that's where God was carrying them. You may have heard that story. Well, if you can look around you and see the footprints of Satan and realize that this is when this is, I'm in a place where Satan is nearby, you may not know exactly where he is or what he's doing, but you can see some footprints that helps us to steel ourselves against his temptations and therefore escape. And the Book of Mormon describes how we can escape Satan by praying, by believing in God, by calling upon his strength. Again, in the Bible, the beginnings of that doctrine are there, but it's in the Book of Mormon that we learn that without Christ, we would be forever under Satan's power. And if you want to read more about that, uh, read 2 Nephi chapter 9, verse 8. From the Book of Mormon, we learn that the light of Christ extends to everyone. It guides the choices of those, both those who have received the gift of the Holy Ghost and those who haven't. So in the New Testament, we first learn about the gift of the Holy Ghost as it descended upon Christ's followers on the day of Pentecost. But it is in the Book of Mormon, and specifically in that early part of Moroni chapter 7, where we learn that anything that urges us to do what is right, that is a spiritual prompting that emanates from Christ himself. Christ's spirit and his influence extends to all the earth, to all humanity, and we're all constantly feeling it. And for that matter, uh, as it says in Mosiah chapter 2, verse 21, uh, that God is preserving us from day to day by lending us breath that we may live and move and do according to our own will and even supporting us from one moment to another. 
So that is what we learn about Christ, is that our very existence depends on him, not in its initiation, but in its continuation. Every moment depends on Christ, and he is constantly reaching out to us. We learn those things from the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon refines our knowledge about the condescension of God and its relation to the love of God. In Nephi chapter 11, Nephi is asked by the angel, what is the fruit? What is the meaning of the fruit that you see? And he says, that's what I want to know. And he says, do you know what the condescension of God is? And Nephi says, no. The, the angel shows him a vision of Jesus Christ coming and living among man, and then he sees that the God of heaven is willing to be slain for the sins of the world. And at that point, he understands that the fruit is the love of God, which sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of men, and is the most desirable thing to make someone happy that could possibly exist. That is a clarity that is provided from the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon explains the nature of grace and its relationship to our agency. There is so much controversy in the world about what is where does our salvation come from? And there is this, in my opinion, a false dichotomy between grace and works. And people say, oh, you Mormons, you believe that you're saved by your own works, which is, number one, not true. But number two, I don't think anyone actually believes that they're saved by their own works. Uh, there are those who believe that God, and this is a real belief, that God chose some people to be saved and you can't do anything to affect your own salvation. To imagine that you have free will is for you to put yourself in the place of God. God has chosen you and he works through you. And that is what they find. That is how they read the Bible. Uh, there are people who still believe this. This is a Calvinist philosophy, but it is still uh, it still has its adherence even today. That is, uh, by, by the way, what I believe about God's other creations besides mankind. I believe that uh, an animal or a tulip, for example, just doesn't have uh, the capability of choosing anything other than what God programmed it, you might say, to choose. But to believe God chose us before we were born to either be elect or not elect is to basically class human beings uh, with the animals and with the inanimate objects of the world. We're just a normal creation of God. Uh, we're not, there's nothing special about mankind that would make him more like our Heavenly Father, and free will is the, is the key to that. That distinction is made clear in the Book of Mormon. The fact that grace comes after what we can do. So we are definitely saved by grace, and grace is defined as an undeserved gift from God. King Benjamin, as in the in the uh, chapter Mosiah chapter two that I just mentioned, he describes the undeserved nature of grace coming upon us, and how God is keeping us alive, but we are always unprofitable servants. And so this grace is a gift that God gives us because He loves us, and we also have to choose it. As Nephi said, we're saved by grace after all we can do. The, if you want to look in Second uh, Nephi chapter 25, verse 23, for more about grace. But grace is mentioned many times, dozens of times in the Book of Mormon. And it is from the Book of Mormon we, get, we gain a real understanding of, and a very clear and 
unambiguous understanding of the grace of God and how it operates upon us. We learn from the Book of Mormon that uh, the real atonement of Jesus occurred in the garden when Jesus bled from every pore. Again, that's from King Benjamin's address in Mosiah chapter 3, verse 7. He talks about how Christ's suffering was so intense that that is where he suffered for the sins of the world. Now, there are many people who believe that Christ died for our sins on the cross, and the cross is what accomplished, is where Jesus Christ accomplished the atonement. Now, that is partially true. Uh, Elder Bruce R. McConkie said in one of his conference addresses that the pains of Gethsemane returned to Christ while he was on the cross. And so I don't understand the nature of all of this, but what we do believe is that it wasn't simply being put to death by Romans that made Christ special. And that, that is where I think many Christians probably are confused. They, they probably think, when they think about it at all, they think, you know, we just don't get that Jesus Christ, why it was so special that he died on the cross. Uh, because, as we read in the New Testament, there were two people that were doing the exact same thing at the very time he was doing it. He was crucified between two thieves, between two criminals. So the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified isn't actually that special. There were many, many people who were crucified in the ancient world and who died in even more horrible ways. And so the, the suffering of Jesus because of his crucifixion, while terrible, it was nothing compared to the suffering that he was willing to take upon himself for our sins and for our infirmities. That was the real suffering. That was where the infinite nature of the atonement came into play. And that is where the love of Jesus was required because when he felt it begin to take effect on him, he realized that uh, as he describes in the Doctrine and Covenants, section 19, he says, it caused even me, the God, the greatest of all, to want to shrink. I would that I might not drink the bitter cup and to suffer and to bleed from every pore. That is an understanding that we have because of the Restoration and because of the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon has, as one of its central messages, the dual nature of the resurrection. One, that it is physical and universal, uh, and you can read about that in Alma chapter 41, but two, that it involves uh, returning us to God for an accounting. All things are restored to their prop proper order. So not just our bodies are resurrected, but our spirits are resurrected when they're brought before God. And both, and uh, every time the resurrection is mentioned, not maybe not every time, but almost every time when the resurrection, the physical resurrection is mentioned, we think about resurrection being our spirits reunited with our bodies. The Book of Mormon teaches that the resurrection is us being brought to account with a bright recollection of all our guilt before our Heavenly Father. Now, in the Bible, there are those who believe all kinds of things about the resurrection. Number one, that people who don't believe in Christ won't be resurrected at all, that they will have no existence once they die. There are people who believe that resurrection means that they will uh, be brought spiritually to live with him. Uh, so there are those who believe that the resurrection is not spiritual, that it is not universal, and that there will be no final judgment for some people. And every combination in between. The Bible itself is not clear enough, it's not unambiguous enough for people to have a very firm understanding of what the resurrection is. That we get from the Book of Mormon. 
from the Book of Mormon, we learn that Jesus Christ shares his authority to act in his Heavenly Father's name with man in a clear and in an ordered way. And among many places, one place we can read about that is in Alma chapter 13, when Alma discusses the calling of the high priests who were prepared before the foundation of the world, who had a calling to, to preach and to administer the gospel and to act in the name of Christ. We learn from the Book of Mormon that Jesus Christ continues to call prophets wherever there are people willing to listen. So in Mormon chapter 9, verse 7 and 8, Moroni says, If you've imagined to yourself the kind of God who changes so much that he no longer calls prophets, then you're worshiping something else other than the God of Israel. That is the God who would not change and continues to call prophets. And if he is not calling a prophet, it's because there is no one willing to listen to prophets at, at your time or in your place. And that is your fault. Uh, that, is the, that is the lesson about prophets from the Book of Mormon. Uh, we learn about Christ that he operates within an established church with prophets and apostles. So in 3 Nephi chapter 12, the first thing that Jesus does is he calls 12 disciples and immediately sets them apart to both administer the sacrament and then go and preach the gospel and baptize people. That And, and he establishes a, a religion, a church, so it has both doctrine and fellowship and authority. The Book of Mormon, uh, in, and now we're getting to the time after his earthly ministry when Christ was among the Nephites, the Book of Mormon reveals an even more personal Christ, a more tender side of Jesus' personality and his love for us. So uh, you might recall that he, instead of speaking in cryptic terms and saying to people, don't tell anyone that I've healed you, he immediately talks to an entire multitude, shows them the proof of who he is, and then heals all of their infirmities, blesses their children, prays for them in such a way that none of them can describe in words the experience. It's, it's so transcendent that there's no possible way to describe that words could even come close to doing it justice, so they didn't even try to write down what he prayed. He prayed for all of them, and this affected them. This had such a powerful effect on them, a few days worth of Jesus teaching them had such a powerful effect that they had 300 years of peace and love and harmony and sharing. Now, was this because they didn't have the same expectations on Jesus as the Jews did? Was it because there wasn't a class of Pharisees who was constantly watching Jesus to wait for him to make a mistake they could catch him in? Was it because the Nephites had just been uh, humbled and also reduced in numbers because of all the destructions that they'd been through. Uh, probably all three of those things. But because of their faith, he simply appeared and was himself with them. And we have this um, more personal Jesus, more tender Jesus, more loving Jesus. We have him revealed to us in the Book of Mormon. We learn in the Book of Mormon that Jesus loves and remembers the Jews. So in 3 Nephi chapter 29, a, third, a few chapters later, we read that he will do unto them according to that which he hath sworn. There, uh, you may remember the Spanish Inquisition. You've heard of that, right? The, these were Christians persecuting Jews in part because, uh, and it was illegal to be a Jew in Spain at that time. Uh, they were persecuting the Jews in part because they blamed them for the crucifixion of Christ centuries earlier. Now, how uh, you can study, if you like, you can read up on how they made that logical leap. 
But the point is, uh, Jews have, uh, I'm sorry, Christians have seen Jews occasionally, not always, but occasionally as enemies, and especially in earlier centuries, because, uh, as it says, as it prophesies in the New Testament, they will be a hiss and a byword. But the Book of Mormon makes it clear that God will perform, and it even says in the same chapter in 3529, you need not, you need no longer make a mockery of the Jews. Uh, you should be grateful, as, as we learn in 1 Nephi, you should be grateful to them, first of all, for the Bible, but you, sh- you should also know that God is going to give them uh, their homeland. He is going to build a temple among them. He is going to personally teach them, and so he has not forgotten them, and he will uh, live up to ev- every covenant he has ever made to their fathers, even the same way that he will do with the Nephites and all of their descendants. So uh, that is a crucial insight into God's relationship with the people of Israel and we get that we get from the Book of Mormon. We learn from the Book of Mormon that God prepared a place for our souls to go between the time when we die and the time when we're resurrected. Uh, we, you can read about that in Alma chapter 40. Finally, the Book of Mormon is itself one of the signs that God is preparing the earth for the second coming of the Messiah. So in 2 Nephi chapter 25, verse 17 and 18, uh, when God brings his words unto them, then he is preparing to do a marvelous work and a wonder. So the Book of Mormon is not only the repository of the teachings about Christ that fill in so many of the gaps that the Bible, as wonderful as it is and as amazing and miraculous as it is, leaves in our understanding of the divinity and nature of Jesus Christ. It is not only the repository of that knowledge, but it is itself an example of the mercy of Christ, because it is a sign that Jesus loves us so much that he is returning one day to be with us and to live among us, to rule us, and as the, as the Bible does say, we, we pray for that day to come, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. So, let's, let's read again the admonitions of President Nelson. Immerse yourself in the glorious light of the restoration. Understand how, you would, how your life would be different if your knowledge gained from the Book of Mormon suddenly were taken away. Understand how the events that followed the first vision made a difference for you and your loved ones. And then understand that the temple is the crowning jewel of the restoration. Well, I'm excited for general conference this weekend, and if you're listening after conference, so much the better because now you have access to everything that was spoken, and you can prepare yourself even better for Easter. Uh, We are in the season, we don't know exactly the date of the first vision, but we're in the season where Uh, Joseph Smith would have had his miraculous vision after so long the heavens being closed uh, because of man's unwillingness or lack of preparedness to hear him. We're in the season when that that silence ended. And what what an amazing time to be alive. How much we have to be grateful for in knowing the truth of God. And as Joseph Smith said in the lectures on faith, when we have the truth about God, when we can gain an understanding of his nature, then we can truly exercise faith in him. Now, my objective in enumerating all these examples of things we learn only in the Book of Mormon or in modern revelation is to counter that tendency where 
we take things for granted because we've known them for so long, perhaps. And I know, for in my case, I was born a member of the church. And so unless I remind myself regularly how much I owe to the Book of Mormon and to the Restoration, then I'll forget and I will perhaps uh, lose an opportunity to be grateful for that wonderful blessing. And what I hope to do this weekend is what I would wish for all of you, which is I, I will attempt to uh, immerse myself in the glorious light of the resurrection, as was recommended by our prophet. I can't wait to hear what they will say. And I pray the same for all of you. I'm so grateful for the resurrection and for the atonement of my Savior and for the restoration, which shed so much light on it. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.